you got to get passionate about this thing. If the cross doesn't move you, nothing will move you. I'm offering you something that's greater than silver and gold. I'm offering you something that's greater than an increase in your pay on your job. I'm offering you a... There's no shortcuts to the glory. We've got to get past week-to-week living. We've got to multiply our prayer life. We've got to multiply our efforts. And we are willing to give. God will always give it back to us in good measure. That is pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Hey, thanks for checking out our Christian Life Church podcast. You will be hearing from one of our pastors or guest speakers, either at our Frankfurt or Lebanon campus. Prepare your hearts and your minds to receive a word from God. Thanks for listening. Enjoy and receive this message. I know we've got some hyphen going on tonight and youth and children's classes, and I'm just excited for what God's doing in the church. Amen. I want to always start by giving honor to my pastor and to our leaders. I want to explain a few things if I can. They carry a burden and a vision that seems easy and explainable, but even Jesus' vision himself of salvation required that that vision was to die and to be buried and to raise again. So when I look across this place and I see things like the front building where we get excited and rightly so, I can't imagine how many sleepless nights our pastor or the leadership might have been having, hoping and praying that this day would come. And I'm just thankful for what God's bringing us through. I'm thankful that God is. There's light at that end of the tunnel and it's brighter than ever. I'm thankful for what God's doing in the church, in Frankfurt, in our region, and in our in our town. Amen. And I honor these men and women, our pastoral team, our bishop, our pastor, because they're so determined to seem uh, to do what seems like an old dead vision and old dead dreams of our church, and they've watched God resurrect them and bring every single word to pass. And while I'm at it, let me say it. When that building process is over, there's an inevitable law that takes place. And I don't want to grow weary and well-doing. I think God's just going to fill that place up. I don't care if February's slow, but by March or April or May, I just trust God to have his way in every room and to open up opportunity for people to be saved and their lives to be changed. Amen? If you wouldn't mind turning with me to Exodus chapter 2, you may be seated tonight. I know that's a little out of ordinary. I'm going to read 10 verses, and I just want you to be comfortable because I don't want to go too fast. see interpretation happening, so... My goal is to go as slow as possible. Exodus chapter 2, 1 through 10, and I will be reading a new King James Version. If you have it, say amen. If you've never heard that before, it means when you see it on the screen or you've opened your Bible, you say amen. Amen. Perfect. We're learning. (laughs) I'll quit. Uh, So Exodus chapter 2, 1 through 10, and a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi so the women conceived and bore a son and when she saw that he was a beautiful child she hid him three months but when she could no longer hide him she took an ark of bulrushes for him dabbed it with asphalt and pitch put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the riverbank and his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And then she opened it, and she saw the child. And behold, the baby wept. 
So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? Amazing when the right thing said at the right time. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the mother's, uh, the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you wages. Now mom's getting paid to be mom. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of water. I have a simple title that won't make sense till the end, but we're just going to go with it anyways. Jesus' favorite weapon. If you wouldn't mind placing your Bibles down and maybe bow your heads with me, but if you wouldn't mind praying out loud with me that God would have his way tonight. Lord, we thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for every chance and opportunity to be in your house, God, to, to hear your word, Lord, and to hear it hopefully, Lord, according to your word, rightly divided. Lord, that it would be a place of truth and a blessing, God, that you would have your way in all that we do for you and your kingdom, God, that you would receive glory, honor, and praise. God, I pray you have your way tonight in everything I say and do. In Jesus' name, and everyone said amen. Amen. I'm not a long-winded preacher. I do that by nature. I just feel like at a certain point I'll probably repeat myself or not have anything good to say. So it's best if I just shut my mouth. So if you'll bear with me tonight, I plan on only preaching maybe about 30 to 40 minutes. And I believe God has something for us. If you look back in the Bible, I'd like to tell you a little bit about what we just read. The children of Israel, they overstayed their welcome in Egypt. A lot of times we go straight to the, the book of Exodus and we talk about Egypt, but we forget why and how they got there. And it was because of a man named Joseph that they were there, because of a drought that lasted for years. The problem is they stayed there an additional 430 years, and it never says that they were threatening as a people, uh, or they were trying to take over, or even tried to do anything to destroy Egypt, or even tried to change what they believed. The truth is, God decided it's time that you get out from there and go to where I want you. By this time, there was probably a multitude of a few million of these children of Israel. Uh, we don't have exact numbers. They counted the men when they would put them in tents and camps. Uh, but ultimately, it was uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people that God decided, I'm going to just take them wherever I decide. And so this new Pharaoh came after years of, of not hearing anything, and he begins to say, I don't know any Joseph. I'm not going to let these people take over, so we will oppress them. And so he turned them into slaves. And when they were worried about uh, them being a great in number, they killed all of the male babies, all except for one, which was who we read about, this beautiful baby named Moses. The Bible said, and we read, where the princess find him hiding among the flags of the reeds. It's, it's amazing when you, you study out what those reeds are. That's the same place. It's uh, what they call papaya. It's, it's a reed that could be formed into paper. And so to think that Moses was laid among the same place that they begin to write the very word of God, because that's, that's where he was laid, in the reeds, in the word, in, in the paper, the place where paper was. And so his own mother begins to raise him, and Moses spent the first 40 years of his life growing up in Egypt. It was a king's palace. He knew the language. He knew the laws. He knew the king's mindset. But the truth is, Moses was even smart enough that it says in, in verse 11, if we would have read a little further, that he saw the Egyptians smite his Hebrew brothers, which means he even knew who he was. He was a Hebrew. And the truth of that is, is that 33 years of an Egyptian home wasn't enough to erase seven years of mama raising him in truth. Moses was truly the greatest leader that I believe we find in the word of God next to Jesus. As a leader, he was the one who stood in the gap for all of the children of Israel. He was a servant, so as a servant, he led. He tried to give God many excuses when uh, he was standing on holy ground with his shoes off and a burning bush before him and God speaking and began to say, I can't speak and why would they use me? And, 
And the truth was God had a plan that was bigger than him. So he even had moments where he questioned himself and doubted what God was going to do through him. And the truth is he even had moments out of the will of God. When you look in the word, it says that he killed one Egyptian and everybody knew about it. That wasn't the will of God. When he was in the will of God, he drowned the entire Egyptian army. There's a big difference between in the will and out of the will. But Moses knew how to find that place with God time and time again, more times than he missed it. He knew where to find God, and he did it through a mind of a leader as he served. Truth is, we never get too big or high and mighty to where we don't have to serve. Moses served the people from a position of leadership. He walked with God. He was led by the Spirit of God in a cloud by day, fire by night. Uh, these are ancestors of Israelites today, and they have a saying, one heart as one person. And so the truth is when Moses led them as a servant and he kept them together, they began to get this mindset generation after generation. There's one heart as one person. There was unity in the fact that Moses led as a servant. When God starts putting his people together, it's all about unity. It's that unity that starts with that servant's heart. And so the question might be tonight, have you ever been in Moses' position? I want to share some stories, if I could, a little bit. I've, I've had a lot of bosses in my life. Has anybody worked at the same company their whole life? Good. One. That's incredible. I have not. Um, I've worked at a Walmart and um, as a teenager, that's never uh, the greatest spot. They expect you to be an adult, and I wasn't an adult. I was just a child. I felt like 16, and I'd got my way into electronics, and I'd have, you know, over the years, boss after boss after boss. And some bosses were great. Some were fantastic, and yet other bosses, they ruled with an iron fist. I had this one boss of mine that um, the whole crew couldn't stand him. He, he, he didn't gel well. He would show up, and it's like his goal was to just set fires to the whole job site. And I thought, what are you doing? Why? Just go. We're okay. We'll figure this out. And so for some reason, he loved me. He'd hang around me all day long, and I would, I would lead those crews. But at a certain point, he would just decide to go and start picking because nobody could quite keep up with what me or him could do together or whatever the case was. And so I thought, man, this guy gets under everyone's nerves, but for some reason, I can tolerate him. I'm not saying I'm Moses, but I can relate to Moses a little bit because there was a time where Moses literally was told by the children of Israel, why don't you go talk to God? Just like with a boss, you go talk to him, Brandon. We don't want to deal with this guy. In fact, I might just quit or throw up, one of the two, but nothing good will happen here. You might just want to take the hit for it. And so it was up to me to go talk, and it, it became a, a, a weird relationship where it seems like I'm a leader, yet I had a job to do as a servant. Biblically, the same thing happened with Moses. Uh, if we read it, it says like this in Exodus 20, and I'll just skip down to verse 18. It says, now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but do not let God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you and that his fear may be upon you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. There's a point to be made to that tonight. God wanted so desperately to talk to his people. The people seemed to be okay with it for a time, but out of nowhere, they said, Moses, we saw the lightning, we saw the thunder, we've seen it all, we're okay, don't let him near us. Imagine God of creation being told, don't come near me. I'll follow your pillar of cloud and your fire, I'll set up your tabernacle, I'll do whatever you want, I just don't want you too close. So Moses had to stand in that gap, he didn't have the choice, but he knew God in a different way. It's amazing sometimes when I look at Paul or Moses, I see people that weren't raised in truth have a zeal to know God more than people that have had generations of it. They get to where it's, it's like, I don't know any better to be afraid, so I'm just going to go and do what I've been asked to do. And so there's this uh, mindset that it's going to be okay. I have to serve. 
tonight, I simply want to give us that mindset that he served his people. Moses took over all those scary moments when God wanted to destroy them, when he repented himself, when they worshiped an idol, when Moses dropped the Ten Commandments. They didn't have to hear God even tongue lash Moses, but God's up there ready to destroy everybody. And simply Moses is the one standing in the gap saying, Lord, if you're going to destroy them, take me also. That's a servant that I want to be like as a leader. Amen. For those of you that can't relate all the way to that. There's power in serving. The Bible says that the last will be first and the first shall be last. I equate that scripture to when we enter heaven. I'm sure there's a lot of things to it, but the truth is that if I will just set my life as though I'm last, in God's eyes, I'm first. It's easy to talk about. I try to train my children. I've got two wonderful boys and a daughter, and my daughter's growing up too fast. She's getting attitude and all that stuff, and <laughs> I'm thankful they have youth tonight. Amen. And then I've got my two boys who are sweet as can be, and I know that they're in a, uh, a time period where they're in the loving stage. The, the, you know, books will call them uh, the lover because they just want to hug you. They want to be nice and close to you. And, and that age ends at about eight. My son just turned nine, my oldest, and he really is the kindest of, of all of us, I feel like, in our house. And so I'm curious what the explorer stage is going to look like when I don't have my son that will, that will hug and be close and be near, whatever the case is. But uh, through it all, I find myself saying, okay, if nothing else, I have to train my children to serve. I do a lot that I do. Everything I do for the kingdom is hopefully so my children will follow in my footsteps. I don't want them to have to question at 18, should we come to church anymore? I don't want them to question, well, we're not really sure what we believe. It's like I hope they're in here so much and they hear it at home so much that there's no question what they believe. So that that, that inheritance and that heritage that I feel I have with my, my parents and even some grandparents, I hope it continues to the next generation. You know, the biggest problem with business, I, I had to spend some time with one of our uh, owners where I'm a part of a, a, a bigger company as far as uh, the trades would go. And I had the time to ask him, I said, man, it's really a, a wild thing that, that you're able to be successful. I said, do you realize what they say about generational businesses. I said, the first one usually starts off great. There's a lot of uh, a hardship that might happen. The second one thrives, but then the third one just tanks. I said, you're the fourth one. What are you going to do? And I'm the idiot that's asking him as his employee. <laughs> what are you going to do here, boss? Are we going to make it? And he was very positive. I, I'm going to take it further. I'm going to do the next thing. I want my children not just to be business savvy, but I want them no matter what generation they might be of church going folk that they say, I'm still going to do the way dad did it. I still want to do it the way my granddad did it. I want to do this, these things the way that I was taught, which means to be a servant. It's imperative that we serve. If the greatest leader of God's people serve, then so must I. How do I serve would be the question. And here's a few ways that I wanted to get to tonight. Tonight's more of teaching than preaching. But I want to hit on some points that we could See the bigger picture on how to serve. I serve God and people when I pray for them. I furthermore serve God and people when I pray with them. I had an elder uh, in our lives years ago. My wife grew up around her, and I, I was able to be around her when we were uh, young and newly married and all that sort of thing. And, and she, she began to teach in a class uh, one time where she talked about praying with people. She said, if you don't begin to carry their burdens even before you go up to pray with them, you haven't done it right. She goes, there needs to be some point where, where you're sharing that burden with them. If you know they're going through a tough time at home or the job or the finances or whatever the case might be, doesn't mean you have to spill all their business in prayer, but you can go up and say, man of God, touch them as though you were going through it yourself. That's being a servant to God. It's taking on some of that burden and saying, I'm going to carry this load. It's when I prefer my brother. It's when I'm involved in ministry. It's when I do what's asked of me according to my talents. Told you I had some stories. Everybody still okay? Just want to keep you all awake. Amen. 
bit dreary. We're just begging for the sun to show up just a little bit. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to speak on uh, customer service online. I often, I'm on the phone with people in uh, Las Vegas and Texas and California and all these nice sunny places, and I get to talk to them for two hours at a time, and I'm just standing in the refrigerator, you know, just, just freezing and, and shaking and frigid because we're in like 20 degrees, and I, I usually ask the question, how warm is it there? Well, it's like 60. I'm like, okay, shut up. Wrong question. <laughs> like, it's freezing here, but in the summer, I'm going to ask him every day, how hot is it now, you jerk? And so I would sit on the phone with him for multiple hours, and we have a great customer that's just had issues with their stuff. And so I get off the phone, and I call my boss, and I say, hey, boss, what do you want me to do with this? Here's all the information. You understand it, right? He said, absolutely. And so I said, okay, now what? Do you want to call him, the homeowner, or do you want me to call him? And he said, man, Brandon, you're pretty good and pretty elegant with the way you speak, and you speak with some understanding. Why don't you go ahead and give that guy a call? <laughs> I thought, great. I called the bearer of bad news. And so I called the homeowner who's had issues, and we've had multiple little boards go wrong and different things that you just you hate to see it happen. And, and it's like I asked my boss, what do you want me to do? And he said that I have that ability to technically talk and understand and make sure that they get it, so you will get us the best result. My learned abilities and talents through the years of talking to irate customers and people on the phone has given myself the ability to be used in that way, right? Seems secular. How in the world can you relate that to church? It's when a guest walks in. We've got some wonderful guests in this place tonight that I've, I've seen, and I, I haven't had the privilege to even meet. I've seen you multiple times, but haven't made my way. But as a guest, to walk into a place, it's extremely uh, intimidating no matter what the setting because everybody knows it but you you ever walk into a coffee house where it's all the regulars and you walk in they just turn around and look and it's like I'm sorry is this a closed meeting <laughs> I'm gonna sit down and get some lunch and that happens in the church sometimes whether we like it or not now they don't know what we're thinking we're excited to have them you're a guest man there, there's no uh, animosity, like, what are you doing here? It's us four or no more. It's none of that. We want you to be a part, but there's sometimes we don't understand even how to serve in our own church. We get the mindset, I'm not sure how to talk to people. I'm not sure what it looks like to go up and greet them, or and even to say the word greet them sometimes just has a weird connotation. Could you imagine being a guest, and, and you get to offering, and you have to tell people to get out in the aisle and shake hands and show yourself friendly? As a guest, I'd be like, this is weird. As a regular, it's like, okay, at least they said something different. You know, next time they'll tell you to clap your neighbor five times. You know, we try to mix it up, but to a guest, it's all new. And so I don't think about it sometimes. Whatever comes out of my mouth, it's like I don't want it to come off as appalling. I've heard the, the statistics of they say like 70 to 80% of people that are told to go and shake hands just uh, absolutely hate it as a guest. Because it's so off-putting, like, I don't know you, I don't want to do this, I don't want to be a part of it. But I'm so glad we still do it. I'm not against it, I hope you see that, but there has to be a part of me to where when I do it as a member that I understand, okay, they're probably not comfortable. I remember one time, it was over in this area, there was a, a, a row of like four or five and a couple of kids that came, a guest, uh, several years ago. And, and I walked up and met mom and met dad and met maybe a sister, and then I met a daughter, and then I met a son, and I, I, I was shaking all their hands. I said, what's your guys' names? I'm trying my best to remember. And I get the board. I said, okay. So I start, you know, dabbing myself like, God, I'm, I'm good, right? And I'm just walking away like, here, Lord, what happened? What was that all about? And it just reaffirms in me that I've got to make sure every service I come in and I'm ready to serve. You okay tonight? I hope we're moving into a place where we can serve others. That's what this whole part of even consecrating is all about, is to try to just make it to where it's not about me. God will bless you if you can really get that what's in it for me out of your system a little bit. He will take care of you, even in those rough times. Uh, I, I, I don't even know if you felt that way where I'm trying to break the ice, I'm trying to break the tension, and all I've done is smack straight into a glacier that sunk the Titanic. The truth is it's okay, Moses. You're still the best chance we have to talk to God. It doesn't matter if it's hard for us. 
you're the best chance for a soul to just have a moment where they feel connected to a Savior. What better place than a place that preaches and teaches truth? Serving means taking the fear off things in the church. I can't imagine, again, being a guest. I, I, I've been a guest in other churches that I, I, I have visited or whatever the case might be, maybe out of the state, and I'll walk in and they'll have welcome booths, and those people are so super friendly, it's amazing, but then I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm going to get past you. Maybe it's too much for me, whatever the case might be. <laughs> then others that aren't friendly, and I'm thinking, you're not enough. You're, you're too hot, you're too cold. I'm looking for something that's just right. All of a sudden, I'm Goldilocks. I'm trying to find my way through the church. And, and it, it's, it becomes difficult to understand that. And it, it's our goal to make it as comfortable as possible while they're here. If you're a guest, let me say it to you tonight. I'm not, we're not trying to scare you. We're not trying to freak you out. We believe that we have the keys to make heaven. And until then, enjoy life on earth with God fully in our lives and every past mistake erased from his mind. I firmly believe we have the keys to the kingdom. Do you realize there's 27,000 other religions that are trying to skate around Acts 2.38? And here we stand saying, no, 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 don't miss it. Don't miss the port important parts. Don't, don't miss what salvation is all about. And we're just a church that's just trying to make it comfortable. God can tug at the hearts. He can make things uncomfortable all he wants. But God forbid if me as a servant didn't do my part to make sure that they were just right when they came to visit church. Amen? I have to make sure that my mind, my heart, my countenance, my attitude, all of it lines up with that of a servant. It's amazing. That's And, and what's, what's funny is that's our goal, to make it as comfortable as possible while they're here, to remove distractions, to take out confusion so God can do what he does, and that's pull at the heart. And we happen to call that a servant. That wrapped up real nice and neat. Service and serving is so important to our God. We name every one of our church times after it. We have service. Tonight, you're in service. And so when we make that invitation that, and that we pray that some of the message makes its way over the speakers, we pray that our hearts would be pricked and at least somebody might ask a question, but I have to start by serving God. Doesn't sound like it makes a lot of sense, and I know I'm, I'm going fast over a big topic, but let me just get into a little bit if I might. We serve others so they might be saved. We build buildings and charge no labor cost, no labor expense to a place that we give most of us 10, 15, 20% of our income. We do all that just so someone's life might see what we have. We teach Sunday school classes and Wednesday night classes week after week, hoping a child, a young person, a new convert, a, or a person that might be trying to get the Holy Ghost or get baptized. We teach every single week. We have Bible study groups. We have a plethora of classes to take place every single week, and it is a service to God. That's what I'm pushing for. Lord, let me be acceptable unto you. Let what I do truly somehow put a smile on your face that I am doing well. The Bible says that at the end, he'll, he'll look at people that, that cry, Lord, Lord. He said it at the uh, end of one of his favorite or one of the most famous messages, that Sermon on the Mount. Lord, Lord. And he's simply going to look at those that didn't understand how to serve. And he's going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Service is a way that we get to know God. Whether it's at work or whether it's at church or at home, we've got to find ways to serve. We evangelize the street. We spend thousands on things like block parties looking for every opportunity for God to perform a miracle. And we do it and we tell ourselves, don't grow weary in well-doing. Do you realize Jesus did most of his recorded miracles on the street? We expect them to happen in the church. We don't think it'll happen in our home. I'm, I'm thankful that prayer happened in a home and the miracle might have showed up here. But I'm thankful for a God that truly will honor his word. He went to streets, highways and byways compelling them. He did everything he could and he didn't do it in synagogues. There never would have been a, a blind man healed if he would have done it in a synagogue. The blind man was in the street begging alms, 
So Jesus even knew that I have to serve no matter where I am, no matter what I do, uh, what I'm doing. And we must serve with passion. It's what makes every effort believable. With that passion follows power. Somebody say passion. Let's try that again. Say passion and then power follows. If you want power in your life, be passionate about the things of God. Some of you are starting to look and you want position. Position and passion are two different things. I didn't say be envious. If somebody's where you're, you think God's calling you to be, I'm telling you pray for them. Support them to the best of your abilities. If he called you, he will make room for you. And until then, you serve. How many of you would like to see our church filled? How many of you would like to do two church services every Sunday morning of the same thing? Uh-huh. I saw your faces too. <laughs> just for the sake of souls. Well, it'll be the same message. That's all right, just for the sake of souls. I don't care what it takes. I don't care what it looks like. I just want to see God move in my city. I want him to see him touch my neighbors, neighbor after neighbor, the one across the street who we don't talk much. I want to see God somehow connect me with him. Let me find a way to serve that man, whether it's grabbing the trash can and bringing it back over. Uh, I know you can't take their mail to him. That's illegal. <laughs> but I want to see the church grow. I want to see the church get built. And it's not bricks and mortar. It's people and it's souls. And if we don't find a way to serve, that will never happen. You know how to build a church? It's with a four-letter word, S-T-A-Y, and that is you stay and you get involved. That's what it takes to build a church. That word retirement's not in the word of God. I turned 41 not that long ago. My guys still can't believe that I get on the roof with them to do the work. They look at me like I'm, I'm some sort of senior citizen and I require a discount. Listen, I look for the day and I'm thankful, but I'm not there yet. But they look at you like, what are you doing up here? It's like, I'm here to show you how to do this because you're slow. And so I do it with kindness, but my goal is always to push them and to show them I will serve with you. What's the nastiest job we got? Let me do it. I'll show you how to do it faster than anyone else. I might not look like I'm in shape. That's fine. But I bet I carry more than you. I bet I try harder than you. I bet I don't whine and I'm going to do it with a smile. My father taught me that. I try to teach our young guys all the time. I always tell them, I said, work twice as much as what you're worth so they can never afford to get rid of you. That's how you get through recession. Amen. <laughs> Moving on. It's a hard pill to swallow. Getting past the thoughts that things have to be done my way. If there's times where I feel like, well, I'm not in charge. If, if I can't lead this group, then I don't want to be a part of it. That's not what God called us to do. He said, serve. When it doesn't make sense, when it's not your way to clean the building, we're just going to get behind whoever's leading that cause and clean the building with them. At some point, they'll be done because we're all human. Amen? Might take way longer than what you think. Might not be the way you did it. You would have said, we're fine just dusting things. It doesn't really matter sometimes as long as they're there to serve. That's what God's looking for. Uh, what about when I'm angrier? When tragedy strikes, listen, God is too good to do wrong, and he's too wise to make a mistake. So no matter what you're called to do, you do it with your whole heart. Do you realize that when Noah was asked to build the boat, God only told him to build it one time? Let me go in that a little bit so it makes sense. A lot of us felt called to ministry at some point in our life. Felt called to serve. Might have got smacked right in the face with a big no, whatever the case might have been. And so we give up on our ability to serve because we felt like there was resistance and pushback. And, and maybe you're not ready for what you're asking for, but that doesn't stop you from just saying, well, I feel called to do something. Noah built a boat off of one word, one time being told, build a boat. 120 years, and the Bible records one time where he was told, build the boat. You realize he built that boat, he preached every day of it, and then at the end, he still only got his family on the boat. If nothing else, may God help my family. 
If nothing else, might he help my children? Might he help my wife? If nothing else, let everything I do for the kingdom be for nothing else but at least my family. Yes, I want everyone else to come with me. He preached with passion. Could you imagine preaching that same message? You didn't even have salvation back then. You couldn't even tell people to repent. You're like, hey, when I'm done with this, you're going to want to be up there. There's going to be a big ramp. A lot of animals will be up there. We'll cage them. You're you're all right. But you're going to want to be. Could you imagine 120 years of that? And then at the end of it all, eight, eight of you, family. That's all that made it. So when you're doing the things that you're supposed to be doing for God, it's okay that the only people that are affected are just your family, but they're going to see you do that, and that's what makes it worth it all. If you've only heard it once, let me try to summarize it. Get involved, serve, pray, fast with the church, be a servant. need to hear it again. If I'm, if I'm not sure if I'm in his will, the truth is that we, we have to just trust him sometimes. I heard a preacher say at one time, if you can't track God, trust God. If you can't, well, I haven't heard him say anything recently. That's okay. I'm still going to trust what I heard last. I'm still going to be a part of what I heard last. This is where we chase after those fruits of the Spirit. I I beat a a drum constantly. I notice that. I beat a drum of of fruits of the Spirit, I feel like, all the time when I preach. It's it's a place of passion for me. You all are pretty quiet all the time on me, so (laughs) just ripping on you. Just kidding. Y'all are quiet enough that I feel like if I preach or teach on something, that at least we'll learn something. Amen? Do you know that the fruits of the Spirit all correlate and line up with a gift of the Spirit, one each? And so when I do what I do, and whether it's out of love or passion or the joy of God, or whether it's out of meekness or kindness or temperance or patience, hello? You ever been patient? Every day, two hours a day, I'm on the phone with some person that barely uh, uh, even understands what's happening in my state. It's amazing to me. It's like there is such a disconnect, and all you want to do is go through what you think, and I'm telling you what my problem is, and it's just this back and forth. God will grow patience. I don't remember asking for it, but every day he gives me an opportunity to be patient, and it's with those that something great happens. Let, let me just share with you. The word of knowledge the Bible talks about, that is the fruit of gentleness. The gift of faith is where meekness comes from. The gift of healing is love. If you can figure out the fruit that you're growing, I can show you what gift is correlated with it. You know why that matters, some of you newer people? The Bible says to un, unto everyone that has the Holy Ghost, there is a gift of the Spirit for you, at least one. And so if, if I have goodness, then, then the working of miracles can happen. Or if I have joy, then the gift of prophecy or long-suffering, there's a gift of discernment. If I have faith, There's the gift of tongues or temperance is the interpretation of tongues. Or if I'm gentle, then I have a word of wisdom. And so I can see what I can be with God and where he's most likely to use me based upon the fruit that I produce. That eliminates a lot of questions. Do I want to see people healed by me laying hands on them? Yes. But if that's not my fruit, I might see God do it. I don't know how successful I'll be at it. If I'm gentle, then hopefully that word of wisdom comes when I'm watching the guy sitting next to me trail off into deep rest when I talk. <laughs> As we're on an hour trip, and he'll just, all of a sudden, I've got a boss that'll sit next to me, and he said, yeah, man, let's ride together. And I think he really enjoys riding with me, but about 10 minutes in, we could be mid-conversation, and he's just, he's done. That phone comes out, and I'm like, hello? <laughs> and scene. That was the end of that conversation. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with you? How can you do that to me? Like, you're, but the gentleness has to take over. And so I'm just sitting there driving, and I've realized I'm tuned out. And so it's like, well, I guess we're going to sit in silence. Because I don't know what music he likes, and I'm not just going to blare anything. And so he'll put something in, and he'll do whatever he wants to do. And it's up to me to just be who I'm supposed to be. I, ha- I can't control nobody else. I can only control me. So let me find a way to... Find a landing if possible. I want to tell you about a little place called Somaliland. Has anybody ever heard of the place of Somalia? Some of you that are at least in your 40s and probably your 50s or even beyond or whatever. Uh, we all remember what happened in the 2000s. I, I work with guys now that were born in 2002, and they tell me they're, they're 22 or whatever the case might be, and I thought, you didn't even live through 9-11. 
I don't even know how to talk to you. <laughs> and so before that was Black Hawk Down and, and Somalia and a whole bunch that happened. And I want to explain Somalia, if I can, in a, in a bit of a nutshell. It's, it's in the Horn of Africa. If you look at it, it's on the backside of all the uh, uh, Arab countries and uh, the Arabian area. And it's considered one of the 22 Arab nations, although they don't claim to be Arab. They were in civil war for years upon years upon years. It was gang against gang, terrorist against terrorist. And the, the citizens of Somaliland were just caught in the middle. Everything was bad. The food was disappearing. The only people that had food were the, the clansmen that were a part of these different gangs. And, and everyone else literally found this drug that's still prevalent today where they would literally rub a few different uh, uh, fruits or, or parts of our world together, some, some parts of trees to get extremely high and just try to numb out their entire life. It's amazing to think of how they just decided to get through this life. And, and, and all the babies would, would have the bloated bellies. It's where we saw old uh, you know, commercials for years of send 20 cents and you'll feed somebody for a month and, and all sorts of crazy statistics about how that would happen. Mothers would often be seen using their fingernails or an old knife or whatever they could, a piece of wood to dig a shallow grave for their children who would die of starvation. They said at the height of it, 300,000 died in six months just of hunger, some as many as 3,000 a day. The gangs, the cartels, the terrorist groups would eat like kings, and they would just throw the leftovers over the big walls that they had of compounds that they would take over and kill every family member that owned it, and they would take it over and just live like kings and throw it over the side, and that they, they said that you would watch as several hundred young uh, babies and children would go and run as quick as they could just to try to get a little piece of flesh or whatever it could just to eat a little nutrition of the leftovers of gang members. I've heard a missionary describe it as he entered the land of one of these cities, and he said that there were dead people as he would begin to drive, and so they pull over and had never seen somebody just laying in a ditch completely skeletons and bones. And, and so they, they looked and didn't know what to do other than let's grab something and find a way to begin to dig a grave. And so they would find a, a, a part of the ditch and just kind of shell it out and lay the body in there and try to wrap it the best they could. And whatever stones and dirt and sand that they had around, they would just throw it on top of it, trying to make it as bearable as possible. And so then they would stand there and a, a, a preacher would take off a hat and just begin to pray, whether it's over the body or whatever, whatever they would believe, however they would go about that. And then they'd put the hat back on and get back in their, their vehicle for the moment and begin to drive again. And just a few seconds later, they would look back in the ditch and see another body. And they would do this as often as they can, multiple bodies and multiple people that they would lay in these ditches and make a shallow grave. And eventually they were getting closer to town and they had to stop doing it because the bodies would just get more and more and more and more. The closer they got to town, the more bodies that would be dead. It was almost like a, a weird reverse. You know, it's less and less, and the closer they got, it just became more and more prevalent. And so the missionary gets out, and he talks to some of the people that they were meeting in the area to, to just look at the wreckage of Somaliland and said, what happened here? Why are all these dead people? And they all looked to be men, and they said, yeah, that's right. So when the family would get down to just feeling as though everybody's going to die, usually the father would get up whatever strength he had. If he thought he could make it, he'd begin to walk. And he'd begin to walk to the next town or the, the next field, whatever he could, trying to find something to bring back to his children and his wife. And usually they would die on their way out of town. And you could see how malnutrition, the, the one they buried first, was truly the fittest of the town. Everyone else didn't even have the strength. This is Somaliland. This is what it was like in the 2000s and in the 90s. They would begin to just look at that and realize this is just uh, perilous. And they said, we're not even a third world country. We're what's called a pre-world country. We, we kind of exist as a country that's before anything else would be considered a world or civilization. We, we don't have any economy. The whole world is destroyed. So they would walk into huts and they would see mothers that were dead of starvation sitting there. And they would even somewhat, they, they, they made the comment of one that would, have a bowl of, of grass that they had water mixed in trying to make a meal. It's absolutely heinous to think of what they did. When they finally got aid and word finally got out in the 2000s and in the late 90s, 
they would drive planes by. They, they used to pull up in vehicles, and they said the whole town would swarm them because they knew they had food, and they had a way to give them something. And so when they began to drop bigger amounts and have uh, aid and relief that would come to them, they would drive by in planes, and they would drop them out of the back and have parachutes. And that seems like a great idea, right? The whole town was so enamored by the fact that food was falling from the sky, they would often go and try to catch multiple pounds and hundreds of pounds of, of wheat and rice and some would be injured and maimed and some even dead underneath the very food that was there to rescue them. You know why that matters? Here's the motto of Somaliland. It goes like this. Me and Somaliland against the world. Me and my clan against Somaliland. Me and my family against my clan. Me and my brother against my family. Me against my brother. There was an order at which time you turn on those that would come. Truth is, when you remove that spirit of servanthood and our desire to be there for God or our fellow man, you lose all that might even try to use with that evil intent, and all you're left with is the motto of Somaliland. Me and Somaliland against the world. Me and my, my clan against Somaliland. Me and my family against my clan. Me and my brother against my family, me against my brother. It's no wonder that they had people dying and some eating like kings while others just perished purely without anything to eat or drink. As our music comes, this brings me to my title, Jesus' Favorite Weapon. John chapter 13, 3 reads like this, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a, vase, a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel at which he was girded. And he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said unto him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said unto him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter responded and said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus' favorite weapon was not stones. When stones came in the picture, the Bible says that he knelt down and wrote in the sand and said, Let the one without sin cast the first stone. Jesus wasn't one that was even about an arrow or a bow. He wasn't about a sword. When Peter used it to chop off the, the Roman soldier's ear, the Bible says that he didn't regard the sword. He came and grabbed the ear and performed a miracle right then and right there. His favorite weapon was a towel. He chose to serve gave his life as a servant. He let everything that he believed in and knew that he was called to do. And the Bible says that he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That means he already knew when he started forming the world that I'm going to have to somehow allow redemption back in. And he gave his life as a servant. They were smart enough to put king of the Jews they weren't smart enough to put King of Kings and Lord of Lord and the wonderful counselor and all that we see God to be. But the truth is, he didn't have to endure a thing if he didn't want to. I firmly believe God could have just spoke it and he didn't have to have the stripes on his back for our healing. The, the bruises for our iniquity, all that, that, that beating that he has to have, that he had to have, the, the pulling of the beard, the being stretched on a cross. You stand with me. Even if this seems so out of sorts, I hope you realize we have an opportunity as a church and a people to serve. You don't have to wait till next Saturday when we're going to do our own foot washing and communion. Some people dread it. I get it. There's nothing fun about washing somebody else's feet. And it's not that you're getting in there and scrubbing them to death. It's symbolic, but there is prayer that happens. And there is some humbling that happens. 
so that God might use us as servants. When you come Saturday, if you decide to help us clean a building and you've got time, and I'm not against those that might not be able to come, but when you show up and, and you think, well, I'm just, I'm just mopping the floor, I'm just wiping down something, I'm just vacuuming, I'm just, I'm just doing a little bit, but you need to do it as unto the Lord. When I do it, I've got to be praying, Lord, Jesus, God, let this wood somehow touch somebody. Let, let when they get called down to an altar, let there be such a drawing of your spirit. You realize the first message when Peter began to preach in Acts chapter 2, he did it because Acts 1 and 8 said that God called us to be witnesses. And that's why I preach it so hard to go to your work and to witness. But in 2 and, and 30 and all the way up to verse 37, when they begin to ask, men and brethren, what shall we do? Because they were pricked in their hearts. Because Peter allowed somebody to serve him, and then he in turn gave his life as service to the world nothing else with my life. Lord, let me be a servant. I've heard it said by T.F. Tinney, I believe, is the man that might have said it first. He said, if the Bible was to be wrapped up in one word, it would be submission. This thing calls us to serve and to submit. It calls us to go ahead and be under authority, even when you think you know it all, even when you think you know what's best for your life. Go ahead and let a pastor just put a covering over you and, and say, I'm going to go ahead and be a sheep to this church. I'm going to go ahead and let God begin to run my life and let him go ahead and move in all that I say and do. His favorite weapon was a towel. It wasn't drugs. In fact, when the vinegar and the hyssop and all that was trying to be given to him, he began to spit it out. He didn't want to be numb. He wanted to know this is what it takes for me to have something special, to, to, to birth salvation. It's what it takes. I'm not going to call you to the front tonight, but I wonder if you would even just close your eyes and bow your heads with me. I want you to begin to ask yourself, what is my motive? If I had a motto, would it be like Somaliland or would it be like the Israelites? One church, one body, one hope. Or would I say it's me against the world and me and my clan against Somaliland? What is it truly that your heart has to say? If there's anything but saying it's me and God trying to serve the world, then we've got it wrong. Tonight I want us to pray even for just a moment and I'll dismiss us, but I want us to pray that God would begin to give us the heart of a servant. Joseph lived his life as a servant. He got elevated eventually to Pharaoh's right hand.